I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So Matt Peacock is my next guest, and I met Matt when he was a guest speaker on the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership course that I tutor, and he is a rock star. And I was just finding out before we pressed record that he, he is kind of a rock star, an actual musician in a past iteration. And he's lived about, wouldn't even say nine lives, probably about 14 by now. He's crammed a lot in, all at a very excellent level. And I always love interviewing people who just seem to be good at everything they do. So let me introduce Matt. Matt is currently a partner at the London-based strategic and creative advisory firm called Blurred, where he provides specialist counsel to clients on ESG, which stands for Environment, Social, and Governance Risk, Sustainability, Social Purpose, and Corporate Transparency. He has breadth and depth of experience in communications and influencing in a range of sectors, including as Group Director of Corporate Affairs at Vodafone, a name you might know where he led the group's global ESG sustainability and comm strategy and established one of the world's leading corporate human rights and transparency programs. If you didn't know that about Vodafone, now you do. Before that, he was director of communications at Ofcom, which is the UK's communications sector's regulator, and was a journalist at the BBC. So that's just a small laundry list of what he's done. But he's a seriously credible and experienced voice who also lectures at international business schools, including IESE, the London Business School, and Henley Business School in the UK, where he's a visiting fellow. So he joined Blurred after that 20-year career in senior leadership. And as I've said, he's lived a bit. I just found out he was a session musician. He produces electronic music at home. He's a seriously fascinating guy with a lot to say on a lot of interesting topics. So... I hope you will enjoy this chat as much as I'm planning to. But what we'll be focusing on is just how important it is now for business, communicators, and governments to focus on doing things differently, but also on communicating well with each other, because we have got a lot of tricky issues and trends to grapple with, whether you're sitting at home thinking my life is pretty complex between working from home and COVID and not knowing what's going to happen with you know the le- next election in my country or whatever, or if you're grappling with that stuff at a more macro level in your job and you deal with systems and supply chains and whatever, because I know we've got a real range of listeners in several countries here. So we're going to look at the tension we all experience as we speed along on this information superhighway on speed these days. But also, what is our responsibility in this time to fact check, to analyze, to take responsibility for our own ability to communicate and connect to others? Because at the end of the day, being a communications professional is about connecting something to something else. It's about connecting a human being with facts or with an ask or with another human being. So in every episode of season three of the Discomfort Practice podcast, we're focusing on the discomfort of change. And we're in obviously a massive time of change and a time in which being great at communications is more and more part of each of our responsibilities in all of our interests. So we're going to talk a lot about communications in this one, about transparency, about leadership. So that's what we're going to focus on today. Welcome, Matt. 
Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. I've now got to follow that by actually wow. being all the things you said I am. <laughs> you don't <laughs> no have problem. to try, Matt. We already know you are. So let's just <laughs> rock on. So you know my first question is always, what's an uncomfortable moment that shaped who you are and what you do in the world? Yes. Well, there have been many uncomfortable moments, actually, not just one that stands out. I think the many uncomfortable moments have shaped me and have shaped many others who I have worked with over the years are kind of whenever you know that the organization you're working for is doing something wrong and you're telling them that they're doing something wrong and they're not listening and however hard you tell them and however strong and seemingly unarguable the data you bring to them they're still not changing now I'm fortunate in that the organ I'm quite picky about who I work for and the organizations that I've worked for over the years have never sort of presented me with a really serious ethical dilemma, let alone any kind of criminal conduct on the part of the people I worked for. So I've not had that kind of a, an uncomfortable moment, fortunately. But I've had multiple moments where, bluntly, the company's doing something idiotic that's just <laughs> destructive and stupid, and they need to stop. And I've more or less used all of those words with the management team, with the ESCO and with the board, in as many words, but they still carry on. And it sort of felt a little bit like being the lookout on the bow of a ship, you know, right at the front, looking out over the horizon and seeing something and you're shouting over your shoulder to the people on the bridge and they can't hear you or they hear you, but they're not listening. And it just takes that much extra time before the guys on the bridge realise, no, really, there is a great big rock ahead and we need to, to course correct. Mm. which is hugely frustrating. Now, I'm not going to tell you specifics of the moments in question as they were pretty confidential at the time and they need to remain confidential. Imagine. And actually, yeah. and to be fair, in every single instance, ultimately the company did listen and the company did course correct. So mm. it sort of worked out all right in the end. But by God, was it hard at the time. It's just so frustrating when that happens. So I think that's sort of my first part of the answer to, to your question about uncomfortable moments that shape me. And I think the other moments in my past going further back that I would highlight is when I was a re reporter, when I was a correspondent with BBC. And there were sort of quite a few moments in my career as a reporter when essentially I was sort of face to face with absolute evil, terrible, terrible things. And as all reporters... Uh, feel when that happens when you're there you have this powerful desire to tell the world about what you see and what's happening and in many cases I'm afraid that's then followed by a realization that it's actually very very hard to get people to change their beliefs and their attitudes no matter how powerful the evidence or how emotionally compelling what you put on the radio or on television or in the newspapers or online I reported on some pretty terrible stuff when I was a correspondent but the end result Bluntly, was often not much more than kind of three minutes of radio, because I was mostly a radio reporter, in, in the background while people in the audience were doing the washing up or yeah. driving home or sort of re repairing a car in a garage, a garage kind of workshop repair place. And I was essentially, my voice describing these terrible things in you know, the, the Civil War in Yugoslavia, for example, where I had some pretty horrible experiences, was just this noise in the background while people got on with their lives. Mm. And that sort of realisation was pretty dispiriting, actually, and ultimately was 
one of the main reasons I left journalism because I went into journalism. I got into journalism by accident, but when I was doing it, the thing that drove me is the thing that drives all good journalists, which is a desire to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And actually, what I realised was it's really hard to make a difference as a journalist. It's really, really hard. Although I, I still love the craft of being a journalist, and I love journalists and journalism, and I'm full of admiration for people who do it. The the fact is that you know my uncomfortable moments in journalism were realising that it actually, however hard you try to present really, really difficult truths that people should respond to, it's very hard to make a difference. Oh, so many people listening to this probably, like me, work in things that they really care about and can relate exactly to what you're saying, where you feel like background noise a lot and and you think you're shouting that this rock is coming and nobody can hear you or you're trying to highlight some of the horrific things yeah. happening and connecting people to other humans and and the ability to do something about it and nobody's listening to you. And it's, it's, it's a uh, horrible it, it, feeling. I think it now has a name. I think it's now called the don't look up syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> From the movie. Yeah. Oh my God. If anybody's not seen that on Netflix, do yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I found it really, really depressing because whilst it's a kind of a dark comedy, actually, in much of my life, it's sort of that's what it's felt like. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think I could almost say it has a name now. It, <laughs> this this thing I'm describing has a name, the don't look up syndrome. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think there's something about us as human beings, psychologically, that's what we do to cope with just we could be deluged and overwhelmed by what's going on in the world if we paid a lot of attention. But at the same time, we can't just check out. And a lot of people do, which is hard when you're somebody who likes to be on the bow of the ship, likes to be the one telling the story and feels an obligation to do so. And then you realize nobody wants to hear it or nobody can handle it. No, that's right. And the reality is that unpleasant truths are disruptive. And all human beings naturally, rightly and properly have a desire for continuity, predictability, stability, knowing where you stand, just kind of getting on with life day by day, doing what you do to kind of just get on. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, people like me, both when I was a journalist years ago and, and in, in my corporate career since, you know, our job, our job has been to root out the things that are wrong and tell people about them and mm. hopefully get help people understand the need for change in order to deal with whatever it is that malign that we've come across and that can ruin people's weeks <laughs> that can make life complicated where previously life was simple it can um, also make you so, very unwelcome i imagine because you're the one highlighting the discomfort that's needed to change uh, no for sure absolutely i mean there've been multiple moments in my corporate career where I've sort of I've walked into a meeting room where there are sort of you know 15 20 people there who've been working on something for a long long time and they know that they need me there because I mean ultimately the role of a corporate communicator is to act as a mirror mm-hmm. a mirror of the outside world to the organization and and reflect the organization out to the outside world but also as one of my chief executives said to me very early in my career a corporate communicator should have a license to interfere you know mm-hmm. Your job is to ask the difficult questions and to and to prod and to poke and to make sure that this this thing that everyone in the room has convinced themselves is perfect and lovely and wonderful and the world will will receive it well. Well, let's just stress test that, shall we? Let's just make sure 
that those assumptions are correct. So I've sort of walked into the room and the people in the room have known that that's my job. And there's been a bit of a frisson. There always is a bit of a frisson when you walk in because it's like, well, if the corporate affairs director is not in the room, that's going to be a problem because we haven't got that sense check. We haven't got that sort of probing voice who challenges us on our assumptions. But the fact that he or she is in the room may mean that actually the whole bloody thing's going to blow up and we've just wasted the last six months of our life pursuing something that isn't going to work. Yeah. So <laughs> you always have that sort of slight sense of, we need you in the room, but we really would rather you didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could you just stamp this? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's, yeah. A yeah thing... no, there's a lot of that many, many, many times. And it's one of the first things that I, I teach people when they come into corporate affairs for the first time, because I, I mentor a lot of um, corporate affairs directors, is absolutely understand that dynamic that yeah. the, the organization, any sensible organization knows that they need a lawyer in the room. And lawyers are very similar to corporate affairs professionals in in, in this sense that the job of a lawyer is to challenge, yeah, and as well as to advise. A good lawyer. I'm talking about in-house corporate lawyers. They need you in the room because they have to assure themselves that you are happy. But at the same time, they would really rather you didn't challenge them. And you have to understand that tension and you have to manage the dynamics in the room. If something is wrong, you have to call it out. You cannot become part of the group think. You cannot be complicit in allowing... The people, and I'm using the metaphorical room, it's often mm. much more than one room. You cannot allow the people around you to convince themselves that black is white or that dark grey is light grey, more realistically. If you know that that's not correct, you have to speak up. That is your job. So, yeah, I mean, you're a disruptor. Yeah. That, in many cases, that turns out to be a part of your job because guess what? Speaking truth to power, which is also in a sense what you're doing, can mess up comfortable assumptions. Yeah. And also, the if anybody knows sunk cost theory, basically the idea that you've invested so much time or resources or whatever in something that you just have to keep going. Even if somebody's like, we are yeah. heading toward an iceberg, turn the ship. And they're Absolutely. like, no, but we're invested and in this course. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's part of the human condition. It happens in companies, it happens in governments, it happens in entire civilizations. And, you yeah. know, if you look at history, that's the kind of the inexorable, inexorable momentum syndrome, if that's a thing, where mm. once, or, or to use the classic historical analogies, the Schlieffen Plan, which was the railway network management process in Germany before the First World War, which was essentially the reason why the war was triggered in the way it was. In order for the troops to be in position, ready to fight, they had to be put onto trains six weeks ahead of time. The Schlieffen Plan was the railway plan of Imperial Germany. Oh, wow. But once the troops were on the trains six weeks ahead of time, you had committed. Wow. It was too late. And the, the kind of the, is, look it up. It's fascinating. The Schlieffen Plan, yeah, Schlieffen is, plan. Is, the, is the kind of the metaphor I know this because I've used it a few times in corporate life. It's, it's the one. metaphor for we've we've started, so we must finish. Is <laughs> yeah. kind of what it boils down to. Oh, wow. And the kind of the role that I play, both as an advisor now, in my as an external advisor now, when I was in the leadership team in in very large organisations previously, is to say no, that's a false. That's a false narrative. Just because you have started does not mean that you must finish if the thing that you are doing is going to lead to calamity. 
So do you so think- yes, you have to write off that sunk cost. Yes, I'm sorry you spent two years of your life working on that thing, but the assumptions that you had at the outset, unfortunately, were flawed. So do you think a really, there seems like a key skill emerging here, which is that to be a good leader, to be actually, well, to be able to navigate in this world, part of the skill is being able to actually quit and knowing sort of this isn't working how do we stop? It seems like yeah. a lot of people just don't know how to stop the process or they feel they don't have power and it just kind of sweeps along. So I'm, I'm just thinking of anybody who's listening to this, who's like, I don't have the power of a corporate comms director, a corporate affairs director. How do I tell the truth? How do I help people to step away from these things that are not working in a project or an investment or, or even if it's like, I don't know how to tell the person I'm supposed to marry. I don't want to marry them. How do you stop when you feel swept along by the system well, and the process? So the first thing is it's not about hierarchy. It's not about power. It's not about status. Any individual in any function, in any activity in life can and should feel empowered mm. to tell the truth to themselves and then tell the truth to others. Now, there's always a consequence in doing that if you are the lone voice if you're in the minority. Yeah. yeah, there's a career consequence, for sure. I mean, I've come close to being fired several times for <laughs> basically being a complete pain in the butt by being the person in the room who says, you're wrong. Mm. When everyone else says, no, we're going to do this, and the everyone else includes most of the leadership team of the company, that's a lonely place to be. Mm. But, you know, I'm not saying, look, I, believe me, I've made mistakes. I've made the wrong judgment calls. We all do. No one's perfect. But yeah. on balance, more often than not, I and the others with me in the room, in the minority in the corner saying, no, 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 we've been right. Mm. So anyone, any one individual in any circumstance has that potential to look into themselves and understand what they feel about what is proposed or what is happening understand, know and understand the truth and then make their own personal judgment call as to what they do in response to that understanding of the truth. And actually, that's been one of the points that I've made when I've got, you know, gotten into these battles where particularly marketing teams, for some reason, they sort of collectively always manage to persuade themselves that the truth is what it should be rather than what it is. Oh, know? God, yeah. <laughs> It's a sort of disease of marketing and it's universal and it's cross-cultural. It's fascinating. Absolutely. But I've encountered that face teams, first. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Particularly marketing teams where I sort of said, look, any one of you could have looked at the same data that I've looked at and realized there's another way of interpreting that data that could produce a negative outcome, not a positive outcome. Any one of you at any point could have made that decision. But either you had a, a sort of a willful blindness to quote the phrase, or you missed it, or frankly, much more likely, you knew it was there, but you chose, you chose not to entertain the thought that perhaps the, you know, the, your thesis was wrong. Mm. Any one of you in this room at any point over the last, you know, X months or longer could have reached that point. And if, if you're not sure that you could have done, well, you know what? One of the other things I say to corporate affairs people very often is get upstream not downstream right mm. get upstream of the decisions be involved early and often worry early and often it's another thing i often say to people <laughs> uh, worrying early and often is how you avoid the kind of the blow up on the launch pad six mm. 12 
18 months down the road and you have uh, you avoid the big battles and that is actually you know smart management teams and this is not a just a commercial sector point it's it applies to all organizations in 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 any context smart management teams involve the people who ask the difficult questions at the beginning not at the end yeah well, and it's why things like pre-mortems, if anybody doesn't know what a pre-mortem is, it's exactly what yeah. it sounds like. Yeah. You look at a project before you even embark on it and think, what could possibly go wrong here? If they were to yeah. write an obituary, what would have killed it? And then you address those things that could possibly be fatal or risky. And it's fun, but most people don't want to hear the things that could go wrong because it's uncomfortable. But I like that worry early and often is a great phrase yeah. and getting I, in I, there I, early. Yeah, yeah, getting upstream, not downstream. Yeah. And the pre-mortem thing, it's also, it's not just having the conversation about what could go wrong. It's having the right people in the room when you have the conversation. Mm-hmm. So you have all the different dimensions of what could go wrong represented, not simply what could go wrong commercially or operationally. Or in terms of comms. Yeah, it's... Yeah, yeah. Having been ahead of comms on several occasions, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. When you get handed something at the end of a project and told to go communicate it, and you're like, oh my goodness, how do I communicate this thing yeah. that is just I mean, so wrong on so many fronts? Yeah. Oh. I know, I know. I, sorry, it's another, I'm sort of popping up lots of aphorisms at the moment, homemade aphorisms. But another thing that I say to corporate affairs directors and, and people coming into court comms for the first time quite often is, you know, you are a priest, not a postman. Mm. Yeah. Your mm. job is to sit with people who have to make very difficult decisions and they need to trust you and you need to have a role as a kind of confessor priest, as it were. Mm. You're not a post box. You're not simply something that they wander up to at 90% through the development of the project and say, here you go, get this out into the world for me. If you find yourself being treated like a post box, then the function has gone wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So a priest, not postman, is another thing I often say to people, which is, that. by the way, really easy to say, really hard to do in practice because, well, guess what? In order to be a confessor priest, you have to be trusted. In yeah. order to be trusted, you have to build that trust. And you, how do you build that trust? You build that trust by demonstrating good judgment in difficult mm-hmm. situations. And that takes time. And also empowering yourself because you made a good point about it. It doesn't matter where you are in a hierarchy, don't. take responsibility and actually realize that you have the responsibility and the ability to choose what you believe, what you ignore, what you do. And kind of, I would say a good motto is always be willing to be fired. Yeah. I have somebody very close to me who talks about being the virus in an organization when you are the truth teller and an organization is like an organism and you have to find where is the right place to be so the organism doesn't spit you out as the virus, where you can sort of like glide on and like find your allies in the body so that it doesn't expel you. Because I've discovered I certain people are much better at navigating that organism than I am. I walk in and people are like, whoa, she's the virus. She's going to tell the truth. And she looks different from everybody else in this room. And I'm better as an external advisor because people call me in to say the hard things. <laughs> so Yes, that's, the- that's also true. That's also true. Though external advisors quite often are called in late. And yeah. it's a, you've got to clear up a way bigger mess. Yeah. I mean, there is another aspect to this, which I also have always encouraged my teams to, to, to adopt over the years, which is that whilst you're the difficult person in the room asking the difficult questions, breaking consensus and so forth, that's not all you do. Mm. What you also need to do is present the way out of it, the way forward. 
So it's not simply, this is a terrible idea, it will fail, full stop. It's what you're proposing will not work. Let me tell you something that would work. Yeah, and bringing people with you. And that's where the long-term value of, of the profession really matters. But stopping the bad, but growing the good mm. is essentially what it's all about. And when I think about, the back to your first question about the difficult moments, the difficult moments have all been resolved because ultimately what I and my team and my allies, you're absolutely right about allies, lawyers have always been my allies. Mm. Lawyers and comms people are like a twin pair, really. Yeah. They should be. What we've essentially done is said, right, there's a rock ahead. You've got to turn left. But by turning left, if you then, a bit later on, you turn right, it will be fine. Yeah. Mm. So it's not just stop or it's not just quick course correct. It's what do you do after that or what do you do instead of that? So there is a really, really important strategic and constructive aspect to the role, as well mm. as being the person who says the difficult stuff in the room where everyone glares at you because essentially you're telling them all they're idiots. Yeah. What strikes me from that is actually it requires leadership because that's what I wanted to ask next. But it's it's about being strategic and also not just being like, oh, my God, we're going to hit a rock, but being like, we're going to hit a rock if we don't turn. So let's go this way and this way. And this is what good yeah. stuff is going to happen as a result, which applies to anyone listening to this, whether they're in a leadership role or not. Be able to have the vision of what can happen next because people respond to that. It's it's a good story. It inspires them yeah. like, oh, oh, this isn't just stopping something. It's a course correction to get us someplace even better. I will sign yeah, but up. You, for you're that. still moving forward. You just you're not simply stopping. Yeah. You're going in a different direction, but you're still yeah. moving forward, and that's the point. Absolutely. So, based on, I mean, you are a corporate leader. You work with corporate leaders. What do leaders in this context in which we are, where things are rapidly changing, and some for the better, some it's very hard. What do they need to be uncomfortable about that they're not, perhaps? Oh, that's a great question. So. Here, I think I need to make a distinction between business leadership and political leadership. Yeah. Because they're very different. Yeah. And they're very different. They're very different in more ways than they've been different in my lifetime, if that makes sense. As mm. in, I see a greater divergence in the quality of leadership in business versus the quality of leadership in politics that I, I've known in 30 plus years of working. Yeah. So I would say what, well, okay, let me start by saying what, both sets of leaders need to be uncomfortable, more uncomfortable about than they are with the proviso that I think it applies more to one set than to the other. So what both sets of leaders need to be much more uncomfortable about, about is economic inequality. Mm. So one of the oddities of recent human history, so the last 70 years or so since the Second World War, is that whilst some quality of life indicators have risen way faster than any time in all of human history. I mean, off the charts, rates of growth. So life expectancy, infant survival rates, adult literacy, levels of female education. And if you look at any of the UN data on this and plot it over a sort of 600 to 1,000 year time frame, everything is sort of flat for centuries. And then, then after, from the 1950s onwards, it just goes vertical like a rocket. Mm. It's quite extraordinary how much society has evolved for the better since the Second World War. But at the same time, what has also happened is the disparity between the very rich and the very poor has got worse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the obvious reality is that societies only work effectively 
for the long term when a very large majority of the population believe they have a stake in the future. Mm. And if a significant proportion, I mean, anything much around a third of society do not believe they have a stake in the future, then the clock starts ticking. And right now, in the developed world, in the rich world, and even more so in emerging markets, um, India actually being a particular case in point, the divergence between the extremely wealthy and the very poor is substantial. And in the developed markets, particularly now that we're entering an area of economic stagnation, which we are now just going into, the effects of economic inequality and the growing number of people who genuinely believe they have no stake in the society around them is that proportion is growing and that is a serious serious issue for the future of business and for the future of politics now mm-hmm. back to my two different tribes of uh, types of tribes of leaders so political leaders and versus business leaders in my experience business leaders are much more likely to be acutely aware of everything i've just said Mm -hmm. much more likely to be uncomfortable about it because ultimately if you're running an organization that has customers and if you're running an organization whose customers are the mass market consumer then you live and breathe these things you're acutely aware of affordability for your customers it it drives so much of your strategy Mm. but in political life there is a divergence there are classes of politicians who absolutely understand in their bones the longer-term negative consequences of rising in economic inequality. And there are those who are essentially indifferent to it and divert all their energy into, frankly, in my view, bogus culture wars Mm. and matters of identitarian politics. So short short answer to a short question rather than a long answer to a short question is... There's a, I think there's a growing understanding in, in business leadership, businesses of all kinds, that economic inequality, particularly in the current economic circumstances, is a serious problem and mm. requires companies to take action quickly. I see much less evidence across the policy space in its entirety, across the full spectrum of politics, that that is a driving force within political thinking. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I grew up wanting a career in politics as a lobbyist in particular. But what I found is I quickly learned politics is not where the power lies. <laughs> if you want to create yeah. change, work with businesses. And you, wow, you've really got me thinking about this. And I totally agree with you because yeah. to be a business right. leader means you probably have a global audience or you aspire to have a global audience or your supply chain is international. And so you have to be acutely aware of these things. Whereas as a politician, all you have to pay attention to are your immediate constituents because you have to be a re-elected pronking every four or five years. Well, so, yeah, it, I, yeah, that's right. It's a massive difference. I mean, essentially, if you work in business, then, and particularly if you work in a public company, your electorate vote on you every 12 weeks, which mm. is your quarterly reporting, right? If you work in politics, in democratic politics, so I'm excluding autocracies and semi-democracies, if you work in in a democracy as an elected politician, you have to sell a product once every four years or every Mm -hmm. five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a kind of, except that's a rather cynical way of looking at it, because the reality, of course, is if you're not out there selling every day, then after four or five years, there is a moment of reckoning. But it's a very different dynamic. The chief executive of a company that sells to consumers is acutely aware 
week in, week out, as the data, as the business information data comes into the executive committee, what customers are feeling, what they're thinking, and how they're responding to macro factors, and how they're responding to what you're doing as a company. It's just in your DNA as a leader to try to understand and feel exactly what your customers um, are concerned about. That should also, of course, be the case in politics. And to be clear, there are many good people in politics who I greatly respect who absolutely do feel that way. Mm. But unfortunately, there is a growing cadre of people in politics who don't feel that way. And what they are motivated by is their personal optics, how what Mm. they say will look rather than how what they say and do will actually change things and reflect the concerns of their voters. Mm. So... To put it mildly, I have a negative perception of most political leadership and um, a much more positive perception of most business leadership. Well, you're certainly not alone. I mean, all of the trends that I read. I mean, I recently did a, a solo episode on the talking about trust and even talking about the Edelman Trust Barometer and about how trust in government, in our systems, is at an all-time low and people are placing more hope in business, actually, to solve some of these collective humongous issues we're facing like climate yeah. change. So it's interesting how people's, what people are looking to for solutions seems to have changed. And they're not just falling for the good political communications that are out there because there's some artful no, political communications. They don't, yeah, exactly. they don't believe them. They know the term they spin believe- and they know that's not a nice thing to be the victim of, or I don't know what you would call it, but yeah, it's been interesting to watch the shift in people's yeah, trust but, in government but, to business. But, you know, but, but here's the thing. So when I made the decision to leave journalism, which was a long time ago now, over a quarter of a century ago, several of my contemporaries who got to the same moment that I did at the same time went into politics, and some of them did very well in politics, and some of them sort of disappeared without trace. And I remember having conversations with the people who went into politics about what would be the best best use of our energy and our commitment as careers. And I I was saying even then, I I felt very strongly that actually businesses could make more of a difference to the world faster than than politicians could. And, you know, I mean, the the people who are interested in politics said that's nonsense because businesses don't make laws, governments do, which is, of course, true. But what's sort of happened since is that a lot of people I know in business who are profoundly good smart, decent people with absolutely the qualities you would want any elected politician to have, adamantly refuse to even entertain the thought of entering politics. They could imagine nothing worse than going from running a company to going into politics. And a, a lot of people I speak to say that, and I would say that myself, I could not dream of going into politics. And unfortunately, what has happened over the last, certainly in my working lifetime, is that that sort of, that trend has now become normalised. And unfortunately, mm. a lot of the people who you would not want to go into politics do go into politics. Yeah. And a lot of the people who you would love to go into politics refuse to because they'd much rather go into business and make a difference in business. Yeah. Net effect is, unfortunately, we end up with quite mediocre people in politics put into roles where they're required to make very, very big decisions that affect everyone's lives, and they're not up to the job. Yeah. And that's sort of, that's a collective failure of humanity, is, as it were, that so many of us on the business side of the fence who said, well, we're not going to go into politics because what's the point? Because we can do far more sitting here. And then we've been appalled by what we see in politics, where not very good people who would frankly struggle to make 
lower middle management and your average sort of you know smaller medium enterprise mm. end up in cabinet yeah. yeah so what i'm saying is i guess looking back at it, actually those of us who say these things, we're part of the problem. <laughs> it's an unvirtuous circle, isn't it? You've created yeah, this unvirtuous circle where it's like, well, I want to make a difference. I like to get things done and I care about blah, blah, blah. And so you stay away from politics. Yeah. I mean, I thought I would grow up and be in politics. I thought I would be an elected official. So I yeah, kept my I nose clean. Yeah. And also, by the way, so I know quite a few people actually over the years in who are, who are good friends of mine in the commercial world, in, in public company life, who at various points have gone into politics and in some cases at, um, at cabinet level yeah. and then have left, have come out of politics again. And without exception, they found politics to be a negative experience yeah, where the things that they take for granted in terms of you're running an organisation and you make a collective decision as an organization informed by all the data about the right course of action and everyone has been properly stress tested and the sort of interfering people like me have said yeah that's great let's go ahead everyone has decided to go off and do it and then you just go off and do it and then it happens and all the good things flow from it that you expected right which yeah. is how a well-run company operates it doesn't work like that in politics. <laughs> no, it does not. I know this from experience. It does not work like that in democratic politics. And and actually, it doesn't really often work like that in autocracies either. Mm. You know, case in point, the Chinese government's response to COVID is a failure, but they can't admit that it's a failure, but it's a failure. Mm -hmm. So that, that sort of sacrificing that ability just to get stuff done and to get it done well and get it done quickly and get it done with outcomes that are real, that matter, sacrificing that to go into a machine that in most countries doesn't really work. Yeah. It's too big a price. Yeah. It's too big a price for a senior leader to pay. It's clunky. It's not transparent. They're, the internal turf wars are too intense to actually get anything done. Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of people listening are probably feeling like, okay, great, let's just give up now. But what I would love to see would be a crop of people who are excellent, who are like, I am going to be a one-term politician. And, but yeah. then you can argue, how can you get anything done in one well, term? Well, you can't make it shit. But then, and also, look, I mean, just to be clear, to put it mildly, I'm a fan of democracy, right? So <laughs> just in case Good. there's any doubt. I just said that. Because, yeah. <laughs> Because yeah. I've seen the alternatives close up. Yeah. I've worked in countries that autocracies, um, as a, both as a journalist and I've um, done human rights assessments in countries with autocratic regimes like Myanmar, for example. Wow, yeah. And believe me, I would clearly rather live in a democracy than not. But we need to be honest about what it is in politics that isn't working that is driving the kind of negative reputation scores we see in opinion poll after opinion poll where quite mm. simply the voters no longer believe the people in the policy world who are making decisions on their behalf they just don't believe them anymore they don't trust mm. them and this is you see this in multiple countries this is not unique to the oh, uk no, or to the us or to pick your country of choice in the, within the yeah, European yeah. union this is pretty universal problem and I think, personally, I think part of that problem is that unlike the generation of politicians who entered politics after the first, Second World War, who came into public service 
uh, almost literally from the battlefield because they felt very strongly that that was an extension of their civic duty. Service. Service. We don't have nearly enough people in politics who are driven by that dynamic. Now, they mm. again, they do exist in all countries. There are um, profoundly good people in politics who are absolutely there because they feel a very strong sense of civic duty. Yeah. But I just, I don't think there are enough of them. And at the same time, the machine that they're part of is not designed to enable them to make a positive difference. Now, I speak, I, I know a, a number of MPs in, in the UK, so to give a UK context, or, you know, you could... Yeah. The same would be true in the US, where being one person of several hundred and essentially you have one vote in that caucus leads ultimately to a sense that, well, whatever I think will not make a difference because I'm just one person. Yeah. Mm. And it's very, very hard to get any kind of big wins when you are one of a relatively small number of people who feel the way you do. That's, that's the nature of a democracy, to be clear. But the net effect of all of that is that the kind of transformation that a business can affect upon itself or that can bring into effect for the benefit of its customers is extremely hard to deliver yeah. within politics. Well, kind of what it keeps coming back to is if politicians, elected politicians who you might say are part of an elite few who are making policy decisions, think, what difference can I make? Then that trickles down to somebody who doesn't think of themselves as having much power. They're not an elected official. They're not a corporate affairs director whatever. And then how much more must they think, oh, what can I possibly do? Which kind of brings us neatly back to the discomfort of creating change. Because we're obviously on this accelerated path toward whatever it is we need to create next. This new way of doing things, this new way of being in the world that actually works for people. You've talked about economic inequality, which is coming to a head And so I kind of want to ask, talking to people who are listening to this, who might be thinking, wow, if those guys are hopeless, what hope do I have of making any influence? I'm going to kick off this question that I'm about to ask you with a quote from you. You spoke at a PRCA conference in, I think it was 2019, pre-pandemic maybe. And you were asked, what is a key trait that PR and communications leaders, and we'll just shorten that to leaders or everybody, must demonstrate over the coming months and beyond. And you said, wise judgment. We're living through an inflection point in history. And basically everyone needs help to navigate whatever lies ahead. So careful, considered, informed by evidence, robustly debated from all perspectives and taking account of all risks. How can people listening to that apply it in real life? Or maybe they do have power and can apply it. Sort of speaking generally, how can people exercise wise judgment to help us all collectively navigate whatever's coming next, whatever's going on right now? Well, we can all do it. It doesn't matter what level you're at. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, whether you're young, young or old, You know where you sit in the value chain, to use the corporate jargon. Mm. All of us as individuals can exercise good judgment. And I would say all of us as, as individuals should do everything in our power to exercise good judgment based on what we see and what we understand. So I think it requires an understanding of what judgment means and what uh, or what I mean when I talk about judgment. So judgment is a combination of, to use a rather bizarre mixed religious metaphor, it's sort of part Delphic oracle and part confessor priest, right? 
Oh, so that was a good one. It, good mix, Matt. <laughs> so part of it is that developing an understanding of what the next could look like. Develop an understanding of, and so I'm using this is metaphor hell, but you know where the ball is going to bounce next, and that's the sort of over the horizon scanning mm. part of actually in any role is about understanding what could go wrong next or understanding what are the opportunities to do something better that could happen in the future. That's mm. it. Doesn't matter what you do, that is a part of everyone's role. I love that. I love that. And then also, in parallel with that, understand the truth and tell the truth. And where you have the ability to communicate to the people you work for what isn't working and what would be a better way of doing things, tell them. Mm. And there are no, there's, there are no shortage of, of roles in all industries at all levels where individuals have that combined role and that combined power, the, the power to, to look out into the future and that form a view as to what could happen positively and negatively and, and have that inform your judgment. And also the ability to go to those that you work for and convey an uncomfortable truth and convey an alternative way of doing things that would be better. Mm. I mean, look, when I was young, I've, I've worked in timber yards. I've worked on building sites, you know, hard, simple manual labor. And I've also worked offshore in the oil and gas industry on, on gas platforms and oil rigs. In and one of your you know, many lives. <laughs> well, yeah. when I worked, I've worked, I spent four years in the oil and gas industry. And one of the, the basic truths in all of those jobs is that the people at the sharp end, lifting the, the timber, driving the forklift, you know, up in the derrick offshore, they know better than the people back in head office what could go wrong and they actually have a pretty good idea of a better way of doing things mm. or at the very least they have a, a useful insight into a better way of doing things use that power one of the things that i get quite cross about is what i call the kind of the cult of disempowerment which you see in the climate activist movement for example mm. where perfectly capable people with genuine skills convince themselves that they're powerless and convince themselves that there is absolutely nothing that they can do that would ever make a difference other than in the case of climate activism you know gluing their hands to the front door of an investment bank yeah. and it's a nonsense actually it's a nonsense because the reality is very many people in all sorts of roles have the ability to do what i'm saying which is to understand a what would be a better way of doing something and convey that to the people they work with and bring about some kind of a positive change. And that's not just within the organisation. That's also for all of us as individuals in our careers. Yeah? We can make choices in terms of how we work, who we work for, where we work and what we do that can make a positive difference. Mm. I know an awful lot of people in, in many, many, many jobs down to the most junior sort of physical labor type job where the thing that they're doing is making a positive difference to the transition to net zero mm. yeah in all sorts of roles i mean to give you a, a very very simple example northern europe and the uk in particular is desperately short of engineers trained in installing heat pumps air source mm. heat pumps yeah and 
This country has, the UK has to decarbonize space heating and water heating, i.e. gas boilers. We have to move away from that. And the only way to move away from that is to move to new technologies, which are essentially um, air source heat pumps and ground source heat pumps. There is an incredible shortage of people who are trained to do this. I'm trying to put an air source heat pump into my house at the moment, and the wasting lists are enormous. Yeah. So it's a kind of a pragmatic example of career choices that people could make where the training is available for free. It's a trade that will be in demand for many, many years into the future that's a great deal more constructive than sitting in the middle of the road. I am, yeah, I'm grinning here and people can't see that, but a lot of people, you've really confronted a lot of people probably who are listening to this, who are probably activists and probably can relate to that feeling of disempowerment. And you've just sort of been like... And believe me, I mean, just to be clear, you know, I completely understand that sense of despair. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the business of trying to help companies address the climate crisis. Yeah. So I completely understand the rage. At the, again, I'm afraid it's political leadership. Political leadership is woeful and has been woeful for a very long time mm. on what is fundamentally a matter of survival for the human race. So yeah. I completely understand the rage and the frustration, the despair. I completely get that. And I would also add, by the way, I'd say five or six years ago, direct action of the kind that Extinction Rebellion and others pursue, absolutely understandable, mm -hmm. but the world has changed. The world has changed since, and there is a huge amount of activity across business in particular that's focused on the net zero transition. Vast amounts of capital is pouring into the net zero transition. I can't think of a company leadership I've ever met that doesn't get it. Yeah. And pragmatically, in terms of individuals, what can individuals do in a democracy where, and particularly in a democracy like the UK, where there is a very strong renewable sector that's growing rapidly and where there is a clear, clear demand in business for skills linked to the transition, there are so many ways that each individual can actually make a material difference that don't involve essentially blocking the traffic where the, the cars you're blocking are full of people who get it. They know. Mm. People in the UK are, opinion poll after opinion poll tells you, are acutely aware of the climate yeah. crisis. One of the most They're activist markets. Yeah, actually. Yeah. 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 I'm not being dismissive of the people who do this because they're incredibly well-motivated, decent people who yeah. absolutely understand the the, the extent of the crisis and the and the risks of inaction. But I think the world has moved on and they ha perhaps haven't realised it and that there is much more that can be done at an individual level to make a positive difference than simply, as it were, what I call this kind of cult of disempowerment, this, this sense that the only way we can make a difference is by somehow waking the world up and making the world realise there's a problem. Well, the world has woken up, the world does know there's a problem and now the world is looking for people to help them fix it. So help mm. fix it. Well, I've navigated the world of activists for years, and I recently gave a, a lecture to a business school, and I called it being an activist in a suit. Because what I've found is a lot of people who they've just become aware of something that alarms them, and maybe this is news to them, and they just want to do something to change it with the enthusiasm of the newly converted, but also they're just reacting in fear, to be honest. 
And it's really difficult for them often to see allies in places like business or politics. And so I've quite often been like, all right, breathe, have some compassion. These activists who are angry at you for working for a corporate or who don't understand that you are inside the walls of power trying to make a difference and see you as a traitor or not an activist has often been part of what I've had to navigate in my career because I feel like I am an activist in whatever I do and leadership and whatever. Yeah. But I like that you have actually just called out basically the fear factor of reacting and then deciding you don't have any power rather than thinking, all right, this thing is alarming me. I'm feeling pressured by this awareness of just what, how big the things going wrong are. But instead of sitting with that and thinking, how can I productively channel my energies, my talents, whatever people do it. The only thing they think they can do, which is gluing themselves to a train. But actually what you're saying is, and I agree. There's way more. Yeah. There's way more people can do. And actually we're now at a time where business leaders do get this and accept this. And it's like, it's not even a conversation we have to convince people of, but they're looking for skills to deliver it now. So get those skills, be those people. Yeah. Make it's about making the change happen rather than highlighting the need for change. Yeah. It's a a maturation, isn't it? It is. We're in a different phase. And as I say, I mean, I have tremendous sympathy for all of the activist movements who do these things, but I think the world has moved on and perhaps they haven't realized it in a sense what was a radical argument five or six years ago is now mainstream business strategy. That's yeah. the reality. Yeah. Five or six years ago, none of the companies that I was dealing with had ever heard of the term net zero. Oh my um, gosh. I when I first took a proposal into the executive committee at Vodafone, when I was called professor director there to decarbonize Vodafone, to move to 100% renewable energy, this was a kind of pretty novel notion. Yeah. And it took about 18 months to build the business case for it. And ultimately, we made the business case based on a, com- a series of commercial factors rather than emotional factors based on you know what would happen to humanity if we ever reached four degrees plus warming post-industrial. But d- it sort of, it doesn't matter. I mean, the net effect was that Vodafone decarbonized. Vodafone in, is well on its way to 100% renewable energy worldwide across the every single network, every single base station, every single data center. Mm. And that was one of the things that I did when I was there. Now, just to be clear, you know, most people are not in a position where they can engage with a multinational corporation executive committee to make a business case. I'm, I'm not, you know, not saying that. But my point is that there has been a dramatic ch- change in collective understanding in business of what the climate crisis means selfishly for asset values, actually. Yeah. A lot of the change in business has come about because, unsurprisingly, realizing that having a, a sort of category five hurricane every 10 years rather than every 100 years is not very good if you're a re- if you you have a real estate portfolio in a co- in coastal areas right yeah. climate crisis is very bad for business yeah. and as a result businesses have realized we need each of us as businesses to think very hard about how we mitigate and adapt in response to the climate crisis so in other words what was what for, from an activist perspective was essentially a series of marginal voices a few years ago are now completely mainstream Mm -hmm. and are central to thinking in very, very many businesses. And also, of course, are starting to reshape politics, even though the politicians aren't moving as fast as they need to by any means. And also the other dimension to this, by the way, is the what's happening within the investment community, what's happening in capital markets. So as of now, about one third of all assets under management in the U.S., 
are ESG denominated. In other words, there are ESG characteristics to the companies mm-hmm. where the invest, invest, institutional investors hold shares in. And that proportion will be over half by 2025. So wow. the majority of all assets under management in the US will have some kind of an ESG characteristic, the vast majority of which, by the way, is focused on climate factors, focused on environment. Mm. If I go back 15, 20 years, that proportion was below 1%. Wow. Yeah, so and it's to any American very, listeners. very significant yeah. change. Yeah. We've got and, a lot and, of and American by the way, listeners. Europe, yeah. Well, Europe has been ahead of the US for a long time. So the US is actually a laggard. I mean, Europe is about five, six yeah. years ahead of the US. So my point is, it's not just businesses getting the memo and realizing this is a crisis and we need to do something about it. The owners of businesses, of public companies, so the shareholders, the investment community, have also absolutely got this. And and by the way, linked to that is there's generational change within the investment community. So most ESG Mm -hmm. professionals within institutional investors are millennials. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't need to persuade them about the climate crisis. They've grown up with it. So there are these kind of dynamics in how business and capital are approaching the climate crisis that are fundamentally different to only a few years ago, which I don't think the activists have really realised. Though having said that, I share their frustration with the political machine because the political machine is not moving nearly quickly enough, particularly in the UK, where essentially we have stasis in environmental policy. It's stasis. What that made me think of is the difference between the... well. The headlines and the political rhetoric and the culture wars around things like climate change in places like the US, where we know, figures show, the majority of Americans accept that climate change is a scientific reality, and they see the reality of that in their their weather patterns, things that are affecting their daily lives. And also to just think, wow, that much investment in the US in particular, because we've got a lot of listeners there, is focused on climate change and and other environmental social issues. So yep. the narrative is so jarringly far from the reality of what most people actually think. That brings us quite neatly into something that I don't want to let you leave before we've talked about, which is how do we navigate this era of fake news? Because when, when you spoke for us at CISL, you said something about it's never been harder to get away with doing wrong, but it's never been more difficult to convince people of facts or something along those lines. So what is our responsibility as people who just as general public, how do we consume information these days? How can we be wise consumers of information when things are so much less regulated? We've got so much information and it's not just coming through official channels with regulators like Ofcom. What's our responsibility? Yeah. Okay. So this is why I switched from being a positive to being a negative, negativist. So whilst I'm actually pretty bullish about the prospects for dealing with the climate crisis, because the stars are aligning and uh, companies and, and capital, and to a certain extent, politics are lining up to deal with it. The same is not true for what, to use a slightly old fashioned word, I would call the media literacy crisis. Mm. Yeah. So my big concerns about the future are not now about the climate, because there's good evidence to say, and you can see this in the recent IPCC report, actually, that the the worst case outcomes are already being averted. We still have a lot more to do, to be clear, and it's still possible that we'll end up in a world that's more than three degrees of our pre-industrial levels, which would be catastrophic but not as catastrophic as the early IPCC projections. And there are good reasons to be optimistic that we might actually, uh, collectively as a species, 
be taking action on the climate in the way that would not have been conceivable five or six years ago. Mm. However, <laughs> I'm actually much more pessimistic about essentially the kind of um, social atomization and hyperpartisanship that arises mm. from the changes in, in how people receive information and, and how they interpret facts and how they interpret the truth. I'm very troubled by that, and I don't know what the solution is. Look, I mean, if you go back to the early days of the internet, and, and I worked for AOL, the world's largest inter internet business. In fact, at one point, the uh, world's largest company in the dot-com era. Yeah. Um, I was a communications director in the UK for AOL in, at the time of the dot-com boom and bust. And obviously, at Ofcom, I was very involved in media policy and internet policy. When social media first began to gain traction, and this idea of the, the social media bubble, the kind of the self-referred network bubble first emerged, the, the fear at the time was that, in essence, people would believe anything that their personal networks told them. And actually, what's emerged now is, in a sense, almost the opposite. People don't believe anything that they read. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and whilst there's a higher level of trust in information that's conveyed from people you know, and that's what opinion polls tell us, the great crisis in how human beings process information and make good judgments based on that information is a loss of faith in facts, in the idea that a fact is a fact. Mm. And the US is an extreme example of that. But right now, Russia is catching up, right? Yeah, where a fact is not a fact. And very little is believed. But the only things that are believed are those that are absolutely thrown at you time and time and time again by those networks you have access to. Mm. And that is a terrible, terrible problem because I'm using business life as a metaphor here, but it's, it applies to every domain in which we operate as human beings. You can only make the right decisions based on the right information. Mm. And the right information is not information that you like. The information is information that is based on ground truth, actual unavoidable fact. I remember when I started off as a reporter, and you know, one of the things that reporters are supposed to get to is facts, actual facts. I remember being told when I was very young, starting out in my early 20s, there's no such thing as a bad fact. There are only ever facts that people do not like. Ah, yeah, that's a good saying. Well, it's true. I mean, it, yeah. it's kind of self-evident. It's like, yeah. you know, gravity is gravity. You know, blue is blue. Green is green. Yeah. And insofar as there is any solution to this, crisis and i think it is a crisis i think hyperpartisanship and selective uh, selective interpretation of facts to the point where they're no longer facts is a crisis the only solution to it is for individuals to have sufficient media literacy that's again that's an old-fashioned phrase but i think it's still relevant to work out which information sources are more likely to convey actual facts and mm. i mean facts as in pure real ground truth facts whether or not you like them, versus which information sources essentially set out to monetize through telling you facts that they think you will like. Mm, but that makes yeah. you think, what do people actually want to have that responsibility? Will people actually seek out facts? Or well, are we pretty I, happy to just be passive consumers of whatever information flows our way? And that is well, dangerous. We are in the, in the same way that we're happy consumers of cheap nutritious food that kills us that's really bad for us <laughs> yeah. in the same way that we're happy not to do a whole bunch of things that from a biological perspective we should do in order to have a healthy happy life in many ways 
you know, media literacy is similar to nutritional understanding, to mm. my mind. Yeah, you know, understanding what is being fed to you and understanding how to interpret that and recognize being able to separate the good from the not so good, the reliable from the not so reliable, should be seen as a fundamental part of being a human being. Mm. But it isn't. And it isn't because, unfortunately, there's a great deal of money to be made in from monetizing facts that people think you'll like rather than facts that are facts you might not like, but are still facts. And my view is, for what it's worth, I'm, social media as a construct, it's, it's, it might be an extreme metaphor, but it's a little bit like nuclear physics in that, you know, when it first emerged, <laughs> you had all these possibilities of positivity, of a positive impact for society. But it turns out that there's a very dark side to it as well, as in nuclear weapons, clearly. Yeah. But once they're there, you can't uninvent them. You can't uninvent filter bubbles. You can't uninvent the way media has evolved so that people can choose mm. what fact sources they have so that those fact sources are preconditioned and pre-aligned with their assumptions about how the world works. You can't change that. Okay. Yeah. So I have no solution to it. I wasn't sure I was going to follow you into that nuclear fission metaphor, but that one worked quite well. You can't uninvent it. Okay. Yeah. So... So you've, you've left us all with a sense of, okay, what do we do next? I would say, I would propose to anybody listening to this, that it is it is our responsibility to take on, to grapple with an awareness of our reactions when we consume information and to recognize when we are reacting rather than processing information and acting rationally. And then to question who's making you react? Why are you reacting? Is it someone else's agenda? Or... Comfort zone, is it something that we're just ready to agree with? So we'll accept it because that therein lies herd mentality. So I think we all need to be really uncomfortable on a regular basis with how we consume information, seek out things that you don't necessarily agree with or that challenge your worldview and just chew on it and also start to understand what the sources of some of your media are. What filters are you getting information through? How are you being directed to be comfortable and with the source of information yeah. that you're comfortable with and the group that you're comfortable with and how is that boxing you and how might that actually harm the world around you to be comfortable all the time in your sources of information because comfort zones can be incredibly dangerous because that's when we start to lose touch with people who aren't like us and lose touch with the ability to be with uncomfortable opinions i mean i think one of the most important things that we have to be able to do as human beings is to imagine what's inside the minds of people we disagree with. Mm -hmm. Step into the skin of those who are opposed to you. And what does the world look like? And what do you look like through their eyes? It's actually, I would say, it's a fundamental characteristic of, of good leadership, actually. Yeah. Good leaders yeah. are those who are able to do that. But it's not just leaders, it's all of us. So in terms of media consumption and where we get our information from, it's really important to read the information sources that are relied upon by people you disagree with. Yeah, I agree. I mean, at the most basic level. And to understand the commercial model of the media sources that set out their entire existence is to confirm your prejudices. 
they are a gigantic exercise in the commercialization of confirmation bias. That's what <laughs> yeah. they are. Okay, successful I, exercise. I understand that. Now, you know, how do you make that happen in practice? Well, you know, the answer is schools. The answer is what happens when children are young and getting children to understand, to be sceptical about information that's presented to them from single sources and understanding this concept of media literacy. Yeah, mm. which is not taught as far as to my knowledge. I think no. some UK schools may do something about it, but certainly from my own experience of my own kids, I haven't seen any evidence that that's an important part of the curriculum, put it that way. No, and it needs to be. So maybe that's that's something for us to take on ourselves. How do we educate ourselves and others to be media literate, to seek facts and facts that are based on science and sort of things that we've known to be able to rely on. But that's a tricky one too, because you think, oh man, it's a miasma. Yeah. It's scary territory. So just to end on a, a bit of a high, what gives you hope? And what one thing would you like people to remember from this chat today? So I think the same answer to both of those questions, really, which is around the climate crisis. There is massive momentum behind the net zero transition now. And I see this all the way across the business world, and increasingly I see it in policy, though the politicians are frustratingly slow and actually are not keeping pace with business in many ways. And it's happening for the best of reasons in that it's driven by the fundamental economics from a business perspective. The economics of the transition to net zero are very attractive for many businesses. And it's important not to lose sight of the, the longer-term trend towards net zero across the business world, even despite the energy crisis that um, we're currently living through that's been triggered by, first of all, COVID recovery demand, and now, of course, the war in Ukraine. The, the dynamics are still there. They weren't there five or six years ago. They are now absolutely rooted in business thinking because there are very, very good reasons for businesses to invest in mitigating the climate crisis and in adapting to it. And it's almost no longer a live topic of conversation within business. Mm. I can't think of the last time I've had to sit with a business leadership and persuade them of the need to take action on climate. They get it. They, may, they In many cases, they don't quite know what to do, but they know they need to do something. And that's a really, really important shift. The other consequence of Ukraine is that what's happening with the war and the effect on energy prices of the war is it's reminded the world of the link between geopolitical risk and energy security risk. And we've sort of forgotten that. Mm. We knew it in the 1970s, but in the sort of modern globalized economy, we've taken many things for granted. And one of the things we've taken for granted is the idea that you can import energy from anywhere and the whole world is one great big energy network. Well, it turns out that it isn't that simple. Mm. So the other thing that uh, Putin has done is effectively accelerate the transition to net zero because he's reminded the world that actually energy security risk is a thing and that one of the most effective ways of um, ensuring a gr much greater level of energy security in the future is to move away from hydrocarbons. Mm. And there's of how to move away from hydrocarbons and that moving away from hydrocarbons um, is economically attractive for the companies that do it. So short version, decarbonizing the energy value chain is happening. It's happening at pace and it will actually happen faster in the future, not slower, 
as a consequence of the very high hydrocarbon um, commodity prices that we see around the world at the moment. So that's my sort of source of optimism and also the key message that I would I would hope that everyone would get from this. And then just want to expand on that just very briefly. I mean, and this is a much bigger point, but it's what is it that makes me hopeful? We constantly underestimate the extent to which humanity can adjust and adapt Mm -hmm. as our world changes around us. And it's part of the human condition. This is a peculiar thing, but I read a lot of history and if you particularly social history, and if you go back in time, you can find multiple examples of where the prevailing logic of the day was that humanity was in a terrible place and there was nothing that anyone could do about it. I mean, I'll give you just one brief example. Thomas Malthus, the great Victorian writer on social policy on economics. So Malthus Malthus developed a thesis, which is that population growth would always outstrip food supply growth. And that as human beings continue to multiply, eventually the net effect would be mass starvation. That was a commonplace view in the Victorian policy world. But of course, what he didn't anticipate was the invention of modern fertilizers, which changed everything. Hmm. And nobody now feels that way. I mean, despite the fact that we have a, a global wheat crisis because of Ukraine, there isn't the dynamic in society now that we don't have enough food to feed people because we don't have the means of increasing yields. We do have the means of increasing yields. The reality is that human beings haven't been around that long as a species. I mean, to give you one instance of what I mean, if you look at the earliest human beings, so the first modern human beings that ever walked the earth, and today, the difference is around 200 generations from where we are today going back to early mankind. It's nothing. Uh, the in- it's nothing. The, I mean, the interval between the earliest Tyrannosaurus rex and the last of the dinosaurs was 127,000 generations. Yeah? Wow. So, wow. As a species, we have a lot of growth left ahead of us. And we actually, as a species, and history tells you this, we have a limitless ability to come up with new ways to solve our problems. And including, and I would say especially, the problems we bring upon ourselves, like the climate crisis. So, I mean, the title of this podcast is important, right? Discomfort. Yeah. The focus on discomfort. Discomfort with the present day and discomfort with what lies ahead of us, unless we change, is a life force. And it's that discomfort, actually, that makes us human and makes us able to adapt. Oh, that's going to be my new strapline. Discomfort is a life force. What a beautiful thing to leave people with, which is basically a story that you can remember that inspires you about the ingenuity and ability to adapt and innovate that humankind has shown throughout its somewhat brief history. But that's a brilliant thing to leave people with. Like discomfort is a life force. Discomfort is the thing that will spur us forward to find solutions together. So don't avoid the discomfort, embrace it, and then Figure out what to do with it and do something. Don't feel disempowered. Don't get sucked into that. Well, Matt, thank you so much for sticking with me. You have been, oh, wow, I knew you would be a great guest and you have been. So thank Thank you for taking so much time out of your very busy schedule to speak to me. And I would love to have you back at some point. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like The Discomfort Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. 
leave me a five-star and written review, and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast and for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable. <laughs>